Hi everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you might be. This is the Cryptid Journalist, and as always, you can just call me CJ for short. Welcome to Cryptid Cryptid. Read all about it. This is my new podcast that takes a look at obscure and historic American cryptid sightings as reported through local newspapers by eyewitness accounts. We'll be looking at creature sightings unique to specific areas, most often paranormal in nature. What was reported and if there is any follow-up or information. Everything for this podcast is on the table. Bigfoot, Dogman, Goatman, Mothman, Bizarre Happenings, Paranormal Monsters, Science Fiction, or maybe even Talking Cats. Please make sure you like and follow after listening to the podcast, and you're always free to email me at cryptidjournalist at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. Also, if you have any suggestions about your hometown, maybe folklore or a legend that has happened there, let me know so I can research it, look through the old historic newspapers, and maybe be able to do a podcast on it. Again, thank you so much for taking the opportunity to listen to tonight's episode, Episode 2. Episode 2 takes us back to the evening of September 12, 1952, in Braxton County, West Virginia, on what is today known as the Flatwoods Monster. The story focuses on an entity reported to have been sighted in the town of Flatwoods in Braxton County, West Virginia, directly after a bright object crossed the night sky. That breezy southern autumn night, seven local residents from the area were eyewitnesses to a bizarre, frightening, and bigger-than-life creature. Now you have to remember, as this story unfolds, the U.S. at this time was going through a new era in culture, the 1950s, where science fiction and bigger-than-life spaceships and space stories were happening not only in the movies and in books, but sometimes in real life. This was only a couple years removed from the Roswell, New Mexico incident. Well, that night started innocently enough. Five local children were playing football in the small southern town of Flatwoods, enjoying themselves and just being kids playing outside in the fall. Sometime in between tackles and forward passes, a strange object streaked across the sky. They watched it, and as it passed over a nearby hill, it seemed to slow down and even lower itself down over the ridge. Their later reports all described the light as looking somewhat like a flying saucer. Again, remember, this was 1952, before there were a lot of UFO reports, and again, only a couple years off the Roswell, New Mexico incident which at the time was not well publicized as it is now. So such a description is a bit unusual, but their stories were all consistent. In later reports and newspaper articles, boys would all say that they saw the object streak overhead and then circle around the hill, and they felt somewhere it might have crashed. Either it lowered itself down or there was an unattended landing. Thinking it might be a meteor, the boys ran home, to Kathleen May, who was the mother to two of the boys of the group. They quickly told their story, excited. May grabbed the shoes and flashlights and set off as a group to investigate the scenario. She was accompanied by her two sons, the other three local boys, as well as a teenage neighbor who was a West Virginia National Guardsman, Eugene Lemon. They moved directly to the area of interest back then known as the Fisher Farm, an effort to locate whatever it was that excited the group of boys. 
and what they had swore they'd seen. The group quickly neared the area of concern, moved directly up the hill with flashlights to where they had seen the object last. And when they got up there, there was a brightly glowing, some even said pulsating, red orb in the ground. The air was filled with smoke and reportedly smelled of sulfur. Some of the witnesses even described it as kind of oily, if air can be oily. The boys had brought their dog, who was terrified from the get-go, wanted nothing to do with this expedition, nor what was happening with the UFO or whatever the object might be. It turned tail and ran away immediately. Not taking the animal's cue, the group slowly moved forward, and simultaneously, they all seemed to become aware of an impending presence of a large, ominous figure overseeing the scene. Looking at the newspaper stories and all eyewitness accounts that have survived the incident, everyone in the party witnessed a terrifying sight. Literally, a ten-foot-tall creature with a head shaped like a spade from a car deck and what happened to be a dark metal dress, robe, cape, or gown-type garment. The thing's arms appeared to be long and its hands were twisted and clawed. The eyes glowed and they were an eerie but distinct orange color. So what happened afterwards? What happened to this group? they chase the creature? Did they beat feet? Did they get caught? Well, the fact is, all seven individuals that night in September, the eyewitnesses, as told through books and newspaper articles and podcasts, all had the same story. They saw this ghastly apparition appear to float off the ground and glide quickly toward them, hissing all the ways it came. Everyone immediately turned and fled in terror back to the May household. That's it. That's the story of these seven individuals in the Flatwood Monster sighting that day in 1952. A lot of folks to this day try to explain it away. Even back then, there was a lot of stories trying to discount seven individuals saying, you guys had an incident that was isolated. There has to be an explanation, and we'll cover some of those at the end of this podcast. Actually, though, doing a deeper dive on follow-up articles in newspapers across the whole area, and some of them being carried national-wide, there was actually several more sightings. In fact, seven, including the one just described, were reported in that September 12th through 13th time frame. In addition, just several days before that September 12th account, an area woman named Audra Harper, who lived five miles north of the Flatwoods area, stated that she was walking through the woods at night with one of her friends when they saw a huge ball of fire up on the hill. Now, they didn't think too much of this or really feel alarmed or surprised, as it was a rural area, and a lot of farmers burned at the drop of the hat, whether it was brush or debris. They just thought it was another farmer burning something out in the field. However, as a strange follow-up to the story, Harper said on record that when she looked back, she observed a dark silhouette of a freakishly tall man at the very spot where the flames had just been blowing uh, around through the wind and, and blazing. So that's a weird and, and interesting attribute. Uh, you think she would have maybe made that more of a focus earlier. Um, did she just add it as something for attention? 
Seems kind of strange to make up. Looking further, though, at another one of the incidents, a day later on September 13th, a young couple was driving on a rural route about 20 miles south of the area, and their car broke down. George and Nina Stataski were there with an 18-month-old son, and they were really desperate to get their vehicle back on the road before darkness fell. They weren't as familiar with the area, and they just wanted to get home. They state their car was equipped with a, almost a brand new battery, and it stalled. Now, interestingly enough, this mirrors a lot of what happens uh, described in many UFO reports. Further, like with the original group of seven, a nauseating smell then made their baby gag. When George got a whiff of it, he decided to get out of the car and search for what smelled so badly. He looked down the slope of the highway and in his words, he saw a large globe moving slowly back and forth, hovering over the ground and giving off a soft violet light. He moved closer. He said he felt the sensation of a thousand needle-like vibrations on his skin. Getting sick to his stomach and throwing up, he staggered back to get in the car. Edith Stataski, his wife, screamed and yelled that something was behind him. He turned to see a figure about eight or ten foot tall with a big head, bloated body, and long spindly arms, blooding rapidly, chasing him. The couple... Finally, both safely inside, locked it up quickly. Terrified, they watched as one of those long, spindly arms with forked ends stretched across their windshield. The couple crouched down in horror, protecting the baby. Several minutes later, George looked up, and he saw the monster apparition gliding away, waiting and waiting. Finally, he felt comfortable enough. Um, he looked up again and saw a globe swaying back and forth, glowing, lifting above the trees, and from what he said, take off into the sky, leaving a light trail. They found a motel in Sutton, tried to sleep, and were startled the next morning when a gas station attendant showed them a V, burnt spot on their hood. So let's go back to the original witnesses that had fled the scene and arrived back at the May House. What happened next after that in the story? Well, several different accounts, but it's stated that they called the authorities, the sheriff's department, deputy sheriffs, and these folks, again, were not really impressed with the story. Uh, Mrs. May, the kids, the, the National Guardsmen from next door, all drew sketches of the, the creature for reference without looking at each other's, and they all looked the same. It was of a, a long, tall, spindly creature with a big glowing head uh, just all looked the same interestingly enough again no one gave this any credibility we're going to talk a little bit about this later on in the podcast about uh, how people responded to it at the time however as word got around this small town type area a lot of folks did get pretty excited about it and they went out and started searching for it uh, groups of people independently um, decided to get together, start looking around, trying to find it. You know, it's almost like a festive-type scenario. Uh, some of the people maybe who had a little bit to drink, which shouldn't help with the credibility in the long run, started tearing around the whole area. So the bottom line is 
what evidence there might have been probably got torn up in the search from the people who were non-law enforcement individuals, you know, folks that the word got around to that thought this would be pretty cool to go see the monster if it was true or not. The next day, they actually talked to Mr. A. Lee. Uh, he's a co-publisher of the Braxton County Democrat. He actually organized a party to investigate the site. Whether he believed them or not, he probably thought it would make some pretty good news, you know, draw some attention to the newspaper. So he got up to the spot with this group of people, and they did a quick investigation. And again, intriguingly, they found a lingering odor. They found a lot of tracks, and, and it's thought that where people have been through the area searching the night before, but nothing other than that. But again, coming back to the odor, um, it made him sick. They saw a little bit of trampled grass, but they echoed the complaints of the earlier witnesses that they got to the point where they almost vomited, and they had to get out of the area for the clean air. So to recap, you, you have the individuals who saw it, or you found some further individuals who saw it the day before, and even the day afterwards. You know, they give the story to the local law enforcement officials and everything else. They pretty much blow it off. But the newspaper man who goes up there, whether he was going to make fun of them or actually just try to find a good story out of this, he gets up to the site with several people, and all of them, to a tea, get just as sick. They get nauseous. This this smell is still lingering in that area. And that's the backdrop of what we're going to take a look at happens in the long run and what people are still talking about today. So we have it. People of the 1950s just weren't willing to believe someone when it came to monsters or aliens. Even seven someones. Even seven someones who might live in their own neighborhood or own small town. Like I said before, when they saw the monster alien, Miss May and the children all ran off as fast as they could back to their house. They reported it to all the authorities. Nobody wanted to give them any credibility. Apparently, the U.S. government sent some folks, men in black per se, sent them to the house where they investigated the sighting and supposedly took down all the witness statements. Again, who were all the same? It is even said that Miss May got some of the oil on her dress that night from the ship. And they took that dress. They said they would return it, and they never did. Surprise, surprise. The 1970s sitcom on TV, Project Blue Book, had an episode about the subject. Project Blue Book being a label given to the Air Force investigations of that time period and earlier of UFO sightings. The sitcom telling the story of those investigations seemed to take some liberties with several of the details. But their conclusion of all things was that the group saw a meteor, supposedly one was confirmed for that night, and the apparition, the one with the long gangly arms and the one with the glowing eyes and head, swaying and hissing, was merely an owl that startled the group. Well, pushing forward several years later, in 2000, investigating the case, Joe Nickel of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry concluded that that bright light in the sky reported by the witnesses on September 12th was most likely a meteor, that the pulsating red light was likely the aircraft navigation or hazard beacon, and that the creature, described by witnesses, closely resembled an owl. Nichols suggests the witnesses' perceptions were distorted by their heightened state of anxiety. Nichols' conclusions are shared by a number of other investigators and echo those, as we saw the Air Force thought, in the sitcom Project Blue Book and from the reports you can look up. 
So what do you believe? After hearing the information from the newspaper articles, there were seven eyewitnesses, including two adults, one in the military. All have the same story to tell. A deeper dive exposed that there were additional sightings within that couple days, with very similar details before and after the sightings on the 12th. Did several people in a three to five day period all encounter a crazy owl who chased them under similar conditions? And what about that awful odor? A review of statements indicate several members of the original gang suffered from throat irritation, vomiting, and nausea, which with some people persisted for days. These symptoms were passed off as side effects of hysteria. But it's worth noting that these are also telltale signs of exposure to mustard gas. May herself claimed to have detected a strong metallic odor while in the presence of the creature that nauseated her to the point she threw up repeatedly over the next several days. Another unique detail is the small time frame is basically it. There have been no additional sightings over the years, such as cryptids like Bigfoot or West Virginia's most famous cryptid, Mothman. However, the Flatwood Monsters lives on through the dedication of area people to keep alive the events of that night. How is this done, you may ask? Well, visit Braxton County, West Virginia today. Yes, today, September 9th, and attend the first annual Flatwood Monsters Convention for an out-of-this-world experience. They advertise world-renowned speakers, remote broadcasting podcasters, amazing vendors, costume contests, and more. Further, a quick search on the internet will provide you thousands of images, stories, urban legends, and more for this one small event. A meteor and owl, you say? Well, not according to the newspapers. All I can say is, with all the museums, all the eyewitness accounts, the books that have been written, the research that's been done, it's just very hard for me to believe that it was an owl. Hard for me to believe it was just a meteor. But again, if you read the newspapers, you take a look at the eyewitness statements, I'll let you make your own decisions. So again, Cryptid Journalist here. Thank you for listening to Cryptid Cryptid Read All About It. And hopefully within the next week or two, I'll have episode three up. But again, thanks for listening. Hit the like button. Send some comments. And if you guys have some suggestions out there of something you want me to take a hard look at through the newspaper articles, I'll take that dive and look at it and try to get that episode out. Thanks again so much for listening, and have a great week.